the year Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart was born? 1756. The gestation period of an Asian elephant? 645 days. That's a long time to be pregnant. The air distance from London to Tokyo in miles? 5,959. And finally, the deepest known point in the ocean in feet? 36,198. If you're like most people, you'll find that somewhere between four and seven of your range answers will not include the correct answer. The simple reason is that we are generally far too confident in our abilities. But what's more shocking, or more detrimental to our portfolios, is that experts are even worse. One of the most supported findings in psychology is that experts are generally even more overconfident than the rest of us. Don't believe me. Let's look at two groups of experts, weathermen and doctors. Each group is given information relative to their own discipline. Weathermen are given weather patterns and asked to predict the weather, and doctors are given case notes and asked to diagnose the patient. They are all asked how confident they are in their predictions. Contrary to popular belief, the weathermen were surprisingly good at this. When they think they are going to be right half the time, they are indeed right half the time. In contrast, doctors turn out to be a terrifying bunch of people. When they think they will be right 90% of the time, they are actually correct only 15% of the time. Why the difference between these two groups? In part, the difference stems from the degree of feedback each group receives. The weathermen know they are pretty hopeless forecasters and therefore have enormously wide confidence intervals. For instance, if you are in the United Kingdom and you listen to a weather forecast, it will go along these lines. There is a small chance of a sunny spell, a large probability of scattered showers, a probability of some snow on the highlands, and the outside chance of a typhoon in the channel. Of course, they effectively covered all possible outcomes. Weathermen can also take a peek outside and see if they are being even vaguely accurate in their forecast. In contrast, doctors tend not to receive good feedback. In addition, our species has an unfortunate habit of using confidence as a proxy for skill. If you go to a doctor and say, Doctor, I've got this dreadful rash, and the doctor responds, Don't worry, I know exactly what that is. Take these tablets and you'll be fine in a week. The chances are you come away happy and reassured. Now imagine you live in an alternative reality. You walk into the doctor's office and say, Doctor, I've got this dreadful rash. And the doctor responds, Good God, yes, that is horrible. I've never seen anything like this before. Do you think it might be contagious? Try taking these pills, and if you're alive in a week, come back and see me. Chances are you're not going to feel very happy about the whole experience. Why does anyone listen to Jim Cramer? We want people to sound confident. In fact, we love people to sound confident. Psychologists have repeatedly found that people prefer those who sound confident and are even willing to pay more for confident but inaccurate advisors. I guess that explains why people listen to Jim Cramer.
For instance, in one experiment, volunteers were given cash for correctly guessing the weight of people from their photographs. In each round, the guessers bought advice from one of four volunteer advisors. The guessers could see in advance how confident each of these advisors was. Right from the outset, the more confident advisors found more buyers for their advice. This caused our friend from the previous chapter, the self-serving bias, to rear its ugly head as the advisors responded by giving answers that were more and more precise as the game progressed. This effect appears to be purely a function of the market. When guessers simply had to choose whether or not to buy advice from a single advisor, the escalation of precision vanished. You might think that the guessers would learn to avoid the overconfident advisors. The good news is that the longer the game was played, the more the guessers tended to avoid advisors who had been wrong previously. Unfortunately, this good sense was significantly outweighed by the bias towards confidence. As long as you were wrong but sounded extremely confident, even a poor track record was excused. Such is the power of confidence. Not only do we like our experts to sound confident, but our brain actually switches off some of our natural defenses when we are told someone is an expert. Neuroscientists have recorded subjects' brain activity with an MRI machine while they made simulated financial decisions. During each test round, subjects had to choose between receiving a risk-free payment and trying their chances at a lottery. In some rounds, they were presented with advice from an expert economist as to which alternative they considered to be better. The results are worrying. Expert advice, attenuated activity in areas of the brain that correlate with valuation and probability weighting. In other words, the expert's advice made the brain switch off some processes required for financial decision-making. The player's behavior simply echoed the expert's advice. Unfortunately, the expert advice given in the experiment was suboptimal, meaning the subjects could have done better had they weighed their options themselves. Beware of experts. The Shocking Dangers of Doing What We Are Told there is another reason why we should be especially leery of experts. They are authority figures. By virtue of being an expert, we endow them with authorities in their fields, and unfortunately we tend to blindly follow authority. For many years I had a sign next to my desk that said, Don't question authority. They don't know the answer either. This rather sums up my general disregard for authority. However, not many seem to share my distaste. The classic work on obedience to authority is Stanley Milgram's experiments from the 1960s. Milgram was fascinated by questions such as why so many ordinary people followed the clearly abhorrent policies of their leaders during World War II. Milgram devised a simple but stunningly effective experiment to illustrate our blind obedience to authority. Subjects were told they would be administering electric shocks to a learner at the instruction of a teacher. The subjects were told they were involved in a study of punishment effects on learning and memory. Those taking part sat in front of a box with electric switches on it. The switches display the level of voltage that was being delivered and a text description of the level of pain ranging from 
slight, through to extreme intensity shock, to danger, severe shock, and culminating in XXX. When the switches were depressed, a buzzing sound could be heard. The person playing the role of the teacher wore a white lab coat, carried a clipboard, and instructed the subjects when to press the button. In a classic variant of this experiment, the subjects couldn't see the person they were shocking, although they did meet them at the start of the experiment. But they could hear them. At 75 volts, the learner would grunt. At 120 volts, the learner started to verbally complain, warning that he had a heart condition. At 150 volts, he demanded to be released. At 285 volts, the learner made a noise that Milgram said could only be described as an agonized scream. Thereafter, the subject could only hear silence in response to further administered shocks. When this experiment is described, people believe that they would stop very early in the process. Indeed, a panel of 40 psychiatrists, asked by Milgram, thought that only 1% of people would be willing to administer the maximum shock level. After all, they reasoned, Americans just don't engage in such behavior. However, the psychiatrists were in for a hard dose of reality. 100% of ordinary Americans were willing to send up to 135 volts, at which point the learner is asking to be released, through someone they didn't know. 80% were willing to go up to 285 volts, at which point they were hearing screams of agony. More than 62% of subjects were willing to administer the maximum 450 volts, despite the machine-label warnings of severe danger and XXX. Milgram ran many different variants of his experiments in order to understand the conditions that influenced the likelihood of people's obedience to authority. The highest compliance rate was found when the subjects were not asked to administer the shock themselves. Instead, another confederate of the experimenter was employed as a second subject. The true subject was asked to read out the questions. So at any time, the subjects could have objected to the experiment, walked out or even stopped the other subject from administering the shock. However, a truly terrifying 93% of people sat and watched somebody reach the maximum voltage. Providing some distance from the actual implementation seemed to markedly increase compliance to authority. Milgram's shocking experiments, if you excuse the pun, highlight the mindless way in which we follow authority. When investing, we need to learn to be far more skeptical of experts and their authority. Fund Managers Weathermen or doctors. Okay, enough of the depressing reality of our sheep-like nature for now. More later, I promise. It is time to turn our attention once again to fund managers. It might be tempting to think that fund managers are more akin to weathermen, but sadly, the evidence suggests that investment professionals are the one group of people who make doctors look like they know what they are doing. In one study, professional investors were pitted against students in a psychology course. All the participants were asked to select one stock from a pair as being likely to outperform the other every month. All the companies were well-known blue-chip names, and players were given the name, industry, 
and prior 12 months' performance for each stock. Overall, the students were around 59% confident in their stock picking skills. The professionals were, on average, 65% confident of their abilities. Sadly, you would have been better off flipping a coin than listening to either group. The students picked the right stock 49% of the time, while the professionals picked the right stock less than 40% of the time. When the professionals said they were 100% confident in their picks, that is to say, there was no doubt in their mind that they had picked the right stock, they were actually right less than 12% of the time. What was behind this appalling performance? Well, the players were asked to rank the factors they relied upon in reaching their decisions. The students said, that guessing was their primary input, as was to be expected. The single biggest factor in the professionals' decisions was other knowledge, things that the experts thought they knew about the stocks in question from outside the scope of the study. This is a clear example of the illusion of knowledge driving over confidence. More on this in Chapter 5. Overconfidence may be hazardous to your wealth. What happens when overconfidence meets the market? Of course, in classical economics, no one is overconfident. In fact, stock markets shouldn't even really exist in the most extreme form of efficient market theory. Why? If the price is right, as it must be under efficient markets, then why would anyone want to trade? So volumes should be zero. As soon as you add overconfidence into one of these models, volumes and turnover explode because everyone thinks they know more than everyone else, and hence they trade more. Terry O'Dean and Brad Barber have explored the impact that overconfidence has on performance. They looked at 66,000 accounts from a discount brokerage over the period 1991 to 1996. The market returned just under 18% per annum over this time, those individuals who traded most frequently, with a monthly turnover rate of 21.5%, averaged net, after fees, returns of less than 12% per annum. Those with the lowest turnover managed to earn almost 18% per annum, after fees. Any informational advantage that high-turnover individuals had was more than eradicated by the costs of trading. One group has been found to be more over-optimistic and more overconfident than every other group in psychology studies. Sadly for me, it is men. Terry and Brad also wanted to see if this showed up in trading behavior. It did. Women had markedly lower annual turnover rates, 53%, compared to men's 77%. Women ended up with higher net returns than men. As if this weren't bad enough, Terry and Brad also examined the performance of a group of accounts where you need your spouse's permission to trade. Those men who needed their wives' permission to trade outperformed the single guys. Unfortunately, those women who needed their husband's permission to trade underperformed the single women. So, not only are men bad traders, they are a bad influence as well. 
When I present these findings to the professionals, they are all too happy to laugh at the misfortune of the individual investor. Yet they themselves are hardly immune to overconfidence's insidious ways. Perhaps the most striking example of overconfidence among professionals is their general belief that they can outsmart everyone else. Effectively, get in before everyone else and get out before the herd dashes for the exit. This is not a new phenomenon. None other than the great John Maynard Keynes wrote the following lines in 1936. Professional investment may be likened to those newspaper competitions in which the competitors have to pick out the six prettiest faces from a hundred photographs, the prize being awarded to the competitor whose choice most nearly corresponds to the average preferences of the competitors as a whole so that each competitor has to pick not those faces which he himself finds prettiest, but those which he thinks likeliest to catch the fancy of the other competitors, all of whom are looking at the problem from the same point of view. It is not a case of choosing those which, to the best of one's judgment, are really the prettiest, nor even those which average opinion genuinely thinks the prettiest. We have reached the third degree, where we devote our intelligence to anticipating what average opinion expects the average opinion to be. And there are some, I believe, who practice the fourth, fifth, and higher degrees. This game can be easily replicated by asking people to pick a number between 0 and 100 and tell them the winner will be the person who picks the number closest to two-thirds of the average number picked. The results from the largest version of this game that I have played, in fact the third largest game ever played, and the only one played purely among professional investors, the highest possible correct answer is 67. To go for 67, you have to believe that every other Muppet in the known universe has just gone for 100. The fact that we got a whole raft of responses above 67 is more than slightly alarming. If you were to look at this on a graph, you would see that there was a spike at the number 50, which reflects what we, somewhat rudely, call level zero thinkers. They are the investment equivalent of Homer Simpson. Zero, 100, duh, 50. Not a vast amount of cognitive effort expended here. Then you would see a spike at the number 33, from those who expect everyone else in the world to be Homer. There's a spike at 22. Again, those who obviously think everyone else is at 33. As you would expect, there is also a spike at zero. Here we find all the economists, game theorists, and mathematicians of the world. Clearly, they have no friends. They are the only people trained to solve these problems backwards, and indeed, the only stable Nash equilibrium is zero. Two-thirds of zero is still zero. However, it is only the correct answer when everyone chooses zero. The final noticeable spike you would see is at number one. These contestants are economists who have mistakenly been invited to one dinner party. Economists never get invited to more than one dinner party.
They have gone out into the world and realized the rest of the world doesn't think like them. So they try to estimate the scale of irrationality. However, they end up suffering the curse of knowledge. Once you know the true answer, you tend to anchor to it. In this game, which is fairly typical, the average number picked was 26, giving a two-thirds answer of 17. Yet just three people, out of more than 1,000, picked the number 17. I play this game to try to illustrate how hard it is to be just one step ahead of everyone else. To get in before everyone else, and to get out before everyone else. Yet despite this fact, it seems that this is exactly what a large number of investors spend their time doing, trying to be the smartest person in the room. So, if we can't outsmart everyone else, how on earth can we invest? The good news is that we don't need to outsmart everyone else. We need to stick to our investment discipline, ignore the actions of others, and stop listening to the so-called experts. So, the next time a financial talking head tries to talk you into anything, do yourself a favor. Put your fingers in your ears and start humming to yourself. Chapter 5 The Folly of Forecasting Prepare. Don't Predict As the 6th century B.C. poet and philosopher Lao Tzu observed, Those who have knowledge don't predict. Those who predict don't have knowledge. Yet most of the investment industry seems to be obsessed with trying to guess the future. This stems from the way many investors are taught to think about investing. For instance, when we learn about the favorite valuation metric of finance, discounted cash flow, we are taught that we have to forecast cash flows for the firm way into the future and then discount them back to the present. However, as Charlie Munger has pointed out, some of the worst business decisions I've ever seen are those with future projections and discounts back. It seems like the higher mathematics with more false precision should help you, but it doesn't. They teach that in business schools because, well, they've got to do something. This whole enterprise of trying to be a financial soothsayer seems largely doomed to failure because of the behavior pitfall from the previous chapter, overconfidence. Let's say you invest according to the following process. Forecast the economy. Forecast the path of interest rates. Forecast the sectors which will do well within that environment. And finally, forecast which stocks will do well within that sector. Now, let's assume you are pretty good at this and you are right on each forecast 70% of the time, which is massively above the actual rates of accuracy that we generally see. If you require all four forecasts to be correct, then you have just a 24% chance of actually getting it right. This assumes that each of the forecasts is an independent event. Now, think about the number of forecasts an average analyst's model contains. Sales, costs, margins, taxes, and so on. No wonder these guys are never right. In addition, 
Even if by some miracle of divine intervention your forecast turns out to be correct, you can only make money from it if and only if it is different from the consensus. This adds a whole new dimension of complexity to the problem. The evidence on the folly of forecasting is overwhelming and would fill many little books in its own right. So let's just skate through a few facts and figures to give you a gist of the problem. We'll start at the top with the economists. These guys don't have a clue. Frankly, the three blind mice have more credibility at seeing what is coming than any macro forecaster. For instance, the consensus of economists has completely failed to predict any of the last four recessions, even once we were in them. The analysts are no better. Their forecasting record is simply dreadful on both short- and long-term issues. When an analyst first makes a forecast for a company's earnings two years prior to the actual event, they are, on average, wrong by a staggering 94%. Even at a 12-month time horizon, they are wrong around 45%. To put it mildly, analysts don't have a clue about future earnings. Their performance in divining the longer-term forecast is no better than their non-existent ability to forecast the short-term. When looking at the five-year growth rate forecasts from analysts versus the actual outcomes, a rather depressing reality asserts itself. The stocks that analysts expect to grow the fastest actually grow no faster than the stocks they expect to grow the slowest. Of course, buying the stocks that they expect to grow the fastest just means signing up for massive disappointment. For now, we can content ourselves by saying that analysts have absolutely no idea about forecasting long-term growth. Analysts also have an embarrassing track record when it comes to target prices. As Ben Graham said, forecasting security prices is not properly a part of security analysis. But that doesn't stop the analysts from coming up with daft guesses as to the future price of a stock. On average, these targets are about 25% higher than the current price. However, they are worthless as forecasts. For instance, in 2000, the average target price of stocks was some 37% above the market price at the start of the year. The actual outcome was that they were up 16%. In 2008, the analysts forecasted a 24% price increase, yet stocks actually fell, nearly 40%. In fact, between 2000 and 2008, the analysts hadn't even managed to get the direction of change in prices right in four out of nine years. The bottom line from this whistle-stop tour of the failure of forecasting is that it would be sheer madness to base an investment process around our seriously flawed ability to divine the future. We would all be better off if we took Keynes's suggested response when asked about the future. He said, We simply do not know. So why do we keep forecasting? If forecasts are really so bad, the natural question becomes, why do people keep producing them? In part, it is a case of demand creating supply. If investors want such meaningless information, then someone will provide it to them. 
I've had countless discussions with both analysts and their managers over the years as to the total pointlessness of issuing target prices. Their last line of defense is always, the clients want them. Yet one might wonder if forecasters eventually get bored with being utterly wrong and would like to give up guessing the future. However, experts seem to use a variety of excuses for forecast failure that allow them to avoid admitting they can't forecast. Philip Tetlock has done one of the most comprehensive studies of forecasters, their accuracy and their excuses. When studying experts' views on a wide range of world political events over a decade, he found that, across the vast array of predictions, experts who reported they had 80% or more confidence in their predictions were actually correct only around 45% of the time. Across all predictions, the experts were little better than coin tossers. After each of the events passed, the forecasters were shown to be either right or wrong. Tetlock returned to the experts and asked them to reassess how well they thought they understood the underlying process and forces at work. Despite the incontrovertible evidence that they were wrong, the experts showed no sign of cutting their faith in their own understanding of the situation. Instead of any self-insight, Tetlock uncovered five frequently used excuses as to why the experts' forecasts were wrong which reminds me of the old description of an economist being an expert who will know tomorrow why the things he predicted yesterday didn't happen today. The most common excuses were, number one, the if-only defense. If only the Federal Reserve had raised rates, then the prediction would have been true. Effectively, the experts claim that they would have been correct if only their advice had been followed. Number two, the caterus paribus defense. Something outside of the model of analysis occurred, which invalidated the forecast. Therefore, it isn't my fault. Number three, the I was almost right defense. Although the predicted outcome didn't occur, it almost did. Number four, the it just hasn't happened yet defense. I wasn't wrong. It just hasn't occurred yet. This is my personal favorite. And finally, number five, the single prediction defense. You can't judge me by the performance of a single forecast. These excuses allowed the failed forecasters to continue making outrageously poor forecasts without any acknowledgement that they really got it wrong. Despite coming from a very different arena, politics, the list of excuses outlined above can also be found frequently in the world of investing. Two psychologists explored the excuses produced by financial analysts, extremely overconfident, as we saw in the last chapter, and by weathermen, well calibrated in the last chapter, when they got it wrong. The weathermen were disarmingly honest in explaining their errors. The most frequently cited reason for their failure was personal inexperience, followed by an acknowledgment that they were trying to forecast the inherently unforecastable. Strangely enough, a very different set of excuses was encountered when it came to the financial analysts. Their most common defense was that 
they shouldn't be judged on the basis of just one forecast, which is known as the single prediction defense, followed by the excuse that something else happened outside the scope of their model, which is the caterus paribus defense. So next time you hear an expert trotting out an excuse to explain why they didn't predict what actually happened, you can listen and see which of these paltry defenses they deploy. But I suggest that you just run, not walk away. Why do we use forecasts? We now have some idea of why it is that people continue to produce forecasts, even if they are useless. However, we are still left with the bigger question, why do people keep blindly following these useless forecasts? As we stated at the outset of this chapter, we have all been taught that we need forecasts to help us invest. This viewpoint was typified in an article that Joe Nocera wrote for the New York Times on October 1, 2005, when he opined, Indeed, I wound up thinking that forecasting is to the market what gravity is to the earth. As much as we like to poke fun at faulty predictions, we can't function without them. Even if we disagree with, say, the analysts' consensus on Cisco, that consensus gives us a basis that helps us to form our own judgments about whether it is overvalued or undervalued. Without forecasts, the market would no longer be grounded to anything. Now, I doubt that we do actually need forecasts to help us invest. But Nocera inadvertently points us to one of the reasons why people keep using forecasts. When given a number, we tend to cling to it, even subconsciously, a trait known as anchoring. For instance, I've asked 600 fund managers to write down the last four digits of their telephone numbers, and then to estimate the number of physicians that work in London. Oddly, those with phone numbers of 7,000 or higher think that there are around 8,000 doctors working in London, while those with telephone numbers of 3,000 or lower think there are around 4,000 doctors in London. I haven't got a clue as to how many doctors there are in London, but I am sure that my best guess would be unrelated to my telephone number. Others have shown that legal experts were influenced by irrelevant anchors when setting jail sentences, even when the experts were fully aware of the irrelevance of the input. In one study, participants, judges, were asked to roll dice to determine the sentencing request from the prosecution. The pair of dice they used was loaded to give either a low number, one or two, or a high number, three or six. Having rolled the dice, participants were told to sum the scores and this number represented the prosecution's demand. Since the judges themselves rolled the dice, they could clearly see that the input was totally irrelevant. However, the group who received the total score of three issued an average sentence of 5.3 months. Those who received a total score of nine issued an average sentence of 7.8 months. So, even by providing a clearly spurious forecast, people are likely to cling to it. As an aside, think about the danger that this problem poses when it comes to so-called modern risk management. Just giving someone a measure such as value at risk means that they will start to hang on to it, even if they are aware that such measures are deeply flawed. But, alas, this topic is outside the scope of this little book. 
However, if you would like more information about the madness of modern risk management, I suggest you consult my previous book, Value Investing. There's got to be a better way. So if we can't invest by forecasting, how should we invest? As Ben Graham pointed out, analysis should be penetrating, not prophetic. That is to say, analysts are called analysts, not forecasters, for a reason. All investors should devote themselves to understanding the nature of the business and its intrinsic worth, rather than wasting their time trying to guess the unknowable future. Different investors have approached the problem of forecasting in different ways. If you are wedded to the use of discounted cash flow valuations, then you may well benefit from turning the process on its head. Rather than trying to forecast the future, why not take the current market price and back out what it implies for future growth? This implied growth can then be matched against the distribution of the growth rates that all firms have managed to achieve over time. If you find yourself with a firm that is at the very limits of what previous firms have achieved, then you should think very carefully about your purchase. For instance, in January 2008, I ran a reverse-engineered DCF model of the sort I've just discussed, which showed that Google, Apple, and RIMM were all pricing in the 40% per annum growth each and every year for the next 10 years. Comparing this with an historical distribution of the 10-year growth rates achieved by all firms over a long period showed that the very best of the best, the 99.99 percentile, had only managed to grow at 22% per annum over 10 years. So the market was saying that these firms would not only do better than almost any firm that ever existed, but they would double the previous record. This struck me as exceedingly unlikely. Indeed, those three stocks lost 53, 52, and 65% respectively over the course of 2008. This approach harnesses the power of the outside view, that is, the statistical evidence, to offset the inside view, that is, our own personal viewpoint. Daniel Kahneman, the pioneer of the behavioral approach, relates a wonderful story that shows the power of the inside view. He and a group of colleagues were involved in setting up a new curriculum to teach judgment and decision-making to high school kids. After about a year, the group had written a couple of chapters for the textbook, and had some outlines for sample classes. The question arose as to how long it would take to finish the project. Kahneman asked each participant to independently estimate the time to completion, and then he averaged the outcomes. He found that the estimates all clustered around two years, and all the estimates were between 18 and 30 months. Since one of his colleagues was particularly experienced at this kind of activity, Kahneman asked him to think about his past experiences and what they might suggest. This experienced member replied, sheepishly, that 40% of the groups he had worked with on similar projects had never managed to finish the task, and that none of the groups had completed in less than seven years. This is the power of the outside view. When applied properly, you can harness evidence to help assess the underlying odds. An alternative approach has been pioneered by Bruce Greenwald at Columbia University. 
Bruce's approach compares asset value, a Ben Graham-like concept that essentially looks at the value of a firm if it were to go bust, to earnings power value, a measure of normalized earnings. Bruce then evaluates the difference between the valuations against the competitive environment, providing him with an outlook for future profits and intrinsic value. Since this is a little book, I don't have the space to go into greater depth, but interested readers could do no better than seeking out Greenwald's marvelous book titled Value Investing, From Graham to Buffett and Beyond. One final approach with which I have much sympathy is best represented by Howard Marks of Oak Tree Capital. As he succinctly puts it, you can't predict, you can prepare. Marx shares my skepticism towards the use of forecasts. In a memo written to Oak Tree's clients in November 2001, he wrote, There are a few things I dismiss, and a few I believe in thoroughly. The former include economic forecasts, which I think don't add value, and the list of the latter starts with cycles and the need to prepare for them. Hey, you might say, that's contradictory. The best way to prepare for cycles is to predict them. And you just said it can't be done. That's absolutely true, but in my opinion, by no means debilitating. All of investing consists of dealing with the future, and the future is something we can't know much about. But the limits on our foreknowledge needn't doom us to failure as long as we acknowledge them and act accordingly. In my opinion, the key to dealing with the future lies in knowing where you are, even if you can't know precisely where you're going. Knowing where you are in a cycle and what that implies for the future is different from predicting the timing, extent, and shape of the cyclical move. This echoes Ben Graham's words that you don't need to know a person's exact weight to know whether they are overweight or underweight. None of the three approaches goes anywhere near a forecast. Yet each has proven investment merit. Of course, this will be anathema to at least 80% of those working in or teaching finance and investment. The idea of investing without pretending you know the future gives you a very different perspective. And once you reject forecasting for the waste of time that it is, you will free up your time to concentrate on the things that really matter. So, when trying to overcome this behavioral pitfall, remember what Keynes said. I'd prefer to be approximately right, rather than precisely wrong. Chapter 6. Information Overload. Distinguishing the Signal from the Noise. When it comes to investing, we seem to be addicted to information. The whole investment industry is obsessed with learning more and more about less and less until we know absolutely everything about nothing. Rarely, if ever, do we stop to consider how much information we actually need to know in order to make a decision. As Daniel J. Boorstin opined, the greatest obstacle to discovery is not ignorance, it is the illusion of knowledge. The idea that more information must be better seems obvious. After all, if the information is of no use, then it can simply be ignored. However, psychological studies cast doubt on the soundness of this seemingly 
innocuous belief. Is more better? In one study, eight experienced bookmakers were shown a list of 88 variables found on a typical past performance chart of a racehorse. For example, the weight to be carried, the number of races won, the performance in different conditions, and so on. Each bookmaker was then asked to rank the pieces of information by importance. Having done this, the bookmakers were then given data for 45 past races and asked to rank the top five horses in each race. Each bookmaker was given the past data in increments of the 5, 10, 20, and 40 variables he had selected as most important. Hence, each bookmaker predicted the outcome of each race four times, once for each of the information sets. For each prediction, the bookmakers were asked to give a degree of confidence ranking in their forecast. With five pieces of information, accuracy and confidence were quite closely related. Sadly, as more and more information was made available, two things happened. First, accuracy flatlined. The bookmakers were as accurate when they had five pieces of information as when they had 40 items to help them. So much for more information helping people make better decisions. Secondly, the degree of confidence expressed in the forecast increased massively with information. With five pieces of information, the bookmakers were around 17% confident. By the time they had 40 items of information, confidence had exploded up to more than 30%, without any improvement in accuracy, remember? So all the extra information wasn't making the bookmakers any more accurate, but it was making them increasingly overconfident. Another group of psychologists have recently found very similar patterns when it comes to American football. They tested football fans' ability to predict the outcome and point spread in 15 NCAA games. In order to take part in the study, participants had to pass a test demonstrating that they were highly knowledgeable about college football. Thus, the subjects could safely be described as experts. The information selected by surveying non-participating football fans, was presented in a random order over five rounds. Each round revealed six items of information in a random order. The information provided deliberately excluded team names, since these were too leading. Instead, the items covered a wide range of statistics on football, such as fumbles, turnover margin, and yards gained. To see if more information really was better information, a computer model was given the same data as the humans. In each round, the computer model was given more information, replicating the conditions the human players faced. The results are reassuring for those who argue that more is always preferable to less. With just the first set of information, six items, the computer model was about 56% accurate. As more information was gradually added, the predictive accuracy rose to 71%. So, for the computer, more information truly was better. What about the humans? Much like the bookmakers, the football experts' accuracy didn't improve with additional information. It didn't matter whether they had six or thirty items of information. Their accuracy was about the same. 
However, the participants' confidence soared as more information was added. For instance, participants started off at 69% confident with six pieces of information and rose to nearly 80% confident by the time they had 30 items of information. Just as with the bookmakers, confidence, but not accuracy, increased with the amount of information available. When less is more. Why was there such a difference between the computer and the humans? We humans have limits on our ability to process information. We simply aren't supercomputers that can carry out massive amounts of calculations in a fraction of a second. We have limited processing capacity. More evidence of these bounds was provided by a recent study on choosing cars. In the study, participants were asked to choose between four different cars. They faced one of two conditions. They were either given just four attributes per car or 12 attributes per car. In both cases, one of the cars was noticeably better than the others, with some 75% of its attributes being positive. Two cars had 50% positive attributes, and one car had only 25%. With only a low level of information, nearly 60% of subjects chose the best car. However, when faced with information overload, 12 attributes to try and think about and juggle, only around 20% of subjects chose the best car. A similar outcome was found among financial analysts. The task they were given was to forecast fourth-quarter earnings in 45 cases. In fact, there were 15 firms, but each firm was presented in one of three different information formats. The information formats were 1. Baseline data consisting of the past three quarters of EPS, net sales, and stock price. 2. Baseline data plus redundant or irrelevant information, that is, information that was already embodied in the baseline data, such as the P-E ratio. And finally, 3. Baseline data plus non-redundant information that should have improved forecasting ability, such as the fact that the dividend was increased. None of the participants realized that they had all seen the same company in three different formats, perhaps because each presentation was separated by at least seven other profiles. Each respondent was not only asked for his or her forecast, but also for their confidence in their forecast. Both redundant and non-redundant information significantly increased the forecast error. However, guess what? The self-reported confidence ratings for each of the forecasts increased massively with the amount of information that was available. From the emergency room to the markets. Given my earlier comments on the problems of confidence in the medical profession, you might be inclined to say that there is little that investors could possibly learn from doctors. However, you would be wrong, and here is why. Our tale starts in a hospital in Michigan. Physicians at this particular hospital tended to send about 90% of all patients with severe chest pains to the cardiac care unit. The unit was becoming seriously overcrowded. Care standards were dropping, and costs were rising. 
The decision to send so many patients to the ICU reflected concerns among doctors over the costs of a false negative, that is, not admitting someone who should have been admitted. Fine, you might say. Rather an overcrowded hospital than the alternative. But this ignores the risks inherent in entering the ICU. About 20,000 Americans die every year from a hospital-transmitted illness. The risks of contracting such a disease are markedly higher in an ICU than in a conventional ward. The most damning problem for the Michigan hospital doctors was that they sent about 90% of those who needed to be admitted, and also 90% of those who didn't need to be admitted to an ICU. They did no better than chance. Such a performance begs the question of why doctors found it so difficult to separate those who needed specialist care from those who didn't. Luckily, this question has been examined. The researchers studying this problem uncovered a startling fact. The doctors were looking at the wrong factors. They tended to overweight risk factors such as a family history of premature coronary artery disease, age, male gender, smoking, diabetes mellitus, increased serum cholesterol, and hypertension. While looking at these risk factors helps assess the overall likelihood of someone having cardiac ischemia, they have little diagnostic power. They are what might be called pseudo-diagnostic items. Far better diagnostic cues are available. Research has revealed that the nature and location of patients' symptoms, their history of ischemic disease, and certain specific electrocardiographic findings are by far the most powerful predictors of acute ischemia, infarction, and mortality. It is these factors that the doctors should be looking at, rather than the risk factors that they were actually paying attention to. Could anything be done to help doctors look at the right things? The researchers came up with the idea of using laminated cards with various probabilities marked against diagnostic information. The doctors could then follow these tables and multiply the probabilities according to the symptoms and test findings in order to estimate the overall likelihood of a problem. If this was above a set threshold, then the patient was to be admitted to cardiac ICU. Otherwise, a normal bed with a monitor would suffice. After this aid to decision was introduced, there was a marked improvement in the decision-making of the doctors. They still caught a high proportion of problem cases, but they cut down dramatically on sending patients to ICU who didn't need to go. Of course, this might indicate the aid had worked, but being good and conscientious scientists, Green and colleagues decided they had better check to ensure that this was the case. This was done by giving the doctors the decision tool in some weeks and not giving it to them in other weeks. Obviously, if the tool was the source of the improved performance, one would expect some deterioration in performance in the weeks when access to the aid was prohibited. The results from this experiment showed something surprising. Decision-making seemed to have improved, regardless of the use of the tool. What could account for this surprising finding? Was it possible that doctors had memorized the probabilities from the cards and were using them even when the cards weren't available? This seemed unlikely, since the various combinations and 
permutations listed on the card were not easy to recall. In fact, the doctors had managed to assimilate the correct cues. That is to say, by showing them the correct items to use for diagnosis, the doctor's emphasis switched from pseudo-diagnostic information to truly informative elements. They started looking at the right things. Based on this experience, the researchers designed a very easy-to-use decision aid, a series of yes-no questions. If the patient displayed a particular electrocardiogram anomaly, called the ST change, they were admitted to ICU straight away. If not, a second cue was considered, whether the patient was suffering chest pains. If they were, they were again admitted to ICU, and so forth. This aid made the critical elements of the decision transparent and salient to the doctor. These simple checklists also worked exceptionally well in practice. The simple yes-no questions actually improved both the number of patients correctly sent to ICU, 95%, and reduced the number incorrectly sent to ICU down to 50%. This was even better than the complex statistical model. The power of simple checklists should not be underestimated. One very recent study examined how the implementation of a simple 19-point surgical checklist might help save lives. The checklist covered things as simple as making sure someone had checked that this was the same patient everyone thought it was, that the nurses had reconfirmed the sterility of all the instruments, and that at the end of surgery someone counted all the instruments and made sure the number was the same as at the start of the operation. These might sound like the kinds of things you hope would occur anyway. However, having the checklist forced people to go through the steps. The results of this checklist implementation were astounding. Prior to the introduction of the checklist, the patient death rate was 1.8%, and the complication post-surgery rate was 11%. After the checklist was introduced, the death rate dropped to 0.8%, and the complication rate collapsed to 7%. But enough about doctors and their patients. What can investors learn from all of this? Simple. It is far better to focus on what really matters, rather than succumbing to the siren call of Wall Street's noise peddlers. We would be far better off analyzing the five things we really need to know about an investment, rather than trying to know absolutely everything about everything concerned with the investment. Jean-Marie Evelar of First Eagle affirms my contention by saying, It's very common to drown in the details or be attracted to complexity, but what's most important to me is to know what three, four, or five major characteristics of the business really matter. I see my job primarily as asking the right questions and focusing the analysis in order to make a decision. Another great investor who knows how to distinguish the signal from the noise is, of course, Warren Buffett. You'll never hear him discuss the earnings outlook over the next quarter or consult an overabundance of information when making an investment. Instead, he says, our method is very simple. We just try to buy businesses with good to superb underlying economics run by honest and able people and buy them at sensible prices. 
That's all I'm trying to do. There is no one right approach to investing. Nor are there three, four, or five factors I can tell you to always evaluate when making an investment. It all depends on your investment approach. I'm a deep value investor, so my favorite focus points might not be to your tastes. I essentially focus upon three elements. One, valuation. Is this stock seriously undervalued? Two, balance sheets. Is this stock going bust? And three, capital discipline. What is the management doing with the cash I'm giving them? These points may or may not be useful to you in your approach to investing, but the important takeaway here is that you should determine the factors you will use to assess your investment choices, and then you will focus on your own analysis of each of these elements. Chapter 7. Turn Off That Bubble Vision. Volatility Equals Opportunity. On any given day, I can turn on the TV and find at least three channels dedicated to filling my mind with in-depth analysis of what are near-random fluctuations in the markets. As I mentioned earlier, these channels are described by a friend as bubble vision. The minutiae of the daily moves are explained to the rest of us by a combination of attractive women and impassioned men with a smattering of bow-tie-wearing experts to aid credibility. The same thing happens in the financial press. Column after column is filled with ex-post justifications for why the market did whatever it did yesterday. As we discussed in the last chapter, too much information leads us to feel overconfident in the extreme, but it does little to aid us. But this isn't our only problem with information. We actually find even useless information soothing, and we process it mindlessly. For example, psychologists have explored the role of placebic information in people's behavior. Placebic information is simply words that mean nothing. Could such redundant information really impact anyone's behavior? The psychologists set up a clever experiment by waiting for a cue to form up at a photocopier and having a confederate try to butt into line. Three possible excuses for jumping the line were provided. One. Excuse me, I have five pages. May I use the Xerox machine? This was the no-information case. Two. Excuse me, I have five pages. May I use the Xerox machine? Because I have to make copies. This is the placebic case. After all, everyone in the line needs to make copies or they wouldn't be in the line. And three. Excuse me, I have five pages. May I use the Xerox machine because I'm in a rush? This was the real information case. A surprisingly high 60% of people allowed the Confederate to jump the line even without any information given. When placebic or real information was given, the compliance rate rose to over 90%. By simply using the word because in a sentence, someone was able to persuade people to believe that the justification was true and meaningful. We appear to like reasons, however banal they may be. The same psychologists went on to conduct a second experiment in which they rummaged around the secretary's rubbish bins at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. 
They collected a sample of memos to give them an idea of the kind of information that the secretaries would receive on a daily basis. Having determined this, the experimenters then sent mock memos from a non-existent person. The memos simply asked for the memo itself to be returned to a certain room at the university. A totally futile exercise, but I'm sure it's familiar to those who work in large organizations. It was hypothesized that when the information arrived in a fashion that the secretaries would regard as normal, they would respond in a mindless fashion. Having looked at the style of memos the secretaries regularly received, the experimenters thought that impersonal requests would be the most common form of memo encountered. The results bore out the researchers' viewpoint. When the secretaries received an impersonal request style memo, 90% of them followed the instruction to return the memo to another room in the university via the internal mail. A few years ago, I came across another great example of people's malleability. The Catholic Church had conducted a poll of 1,000 people, which revealed that those who had read the Da Vinci Code were twice as likely to believe that Jesus Christ fathered children, and four times as likely to believe that Opus Dei was a murderous sect than those who hadn't read the book. All this evidence strongly suggests that when people see information in a format with which they are familiar, they will unquestioningly process it. Hence the survival of what can only be described as noise peddlers in financial markets. Investors faced with chronic uncertainty will turn to any vaguely plausible explanation and cling to it.